On October 20th, 2012, I created the healing space. The goal was for it to be a safe space that differed from my other events. It wouldn't be an open mic, nor a concert series. Instead, it would be a space for people to come to heal via arts and conversation. A space where people could feel free to laugh, to cry, to let their emotions flow freely, and to prayerfully leave that space with some weight lifted from their spirit. I want to accomplish the same thing with the Healing Space podcast. I want this to be a space where people can listen and heal. Where you can hear Brandon and I converse about pop culture as a way for you to escape the stress of your job. To hear the interviews I conduct and prayerfully find gems within them. And with episodes like today, where I pray you discover that you're not alone, that your voice matters, and that no one can silence your pain. Today, we're going to hear from people healing through sexual assault. This isn't going to be an easy topic to discuss, nor to listen to. However, I've never believed in being silent about issues I care about, and I've always done my best to use my platform to speak out against injustice. Every 98 seconds, someone in this country is sexually assaulted. On average, there are over 321,500 victims who are 12 years of age or older that are victims of rape and sexual assault in the United States. 82% of all juveniles are young girls. 64% of trans people will experience sexual assault in their lifetime. 93% of those who perpetrate sexual crimes against children know their victims, and 8 out of 10 rape cases in general, the victim will know the perpetrator. 1 in 6 men will be sexually assaulted in their lifetime. The statistics seem endless, and if we remain silent, they'll only grow. So today, you'll hear from several people who felt it necessary to share their stories. They are of different race, religion, gender identity, and sexual orientation. However, they all share something in common. They haven't let the pain of their sexual assaults destroy them. I pray that by hearing their stories, you'll understand why none of us can be silent, and that if this has happened to you, you can take your life back. You can heal. I lost my virginity through no agreement on my own when I was five and a half. It started off when I was living in Cherry Hill, back in Baltimore, um, with a neighborhood bully who would beat the snot out of me every chance he got. And to this day, I don't know what his trigger was. So being and feeling helpless, I went to my babysitter's grandson and asked him if he could make him stop. Little did I know that that request would come with a price. So the good side is he was able to make his kids stop. The bad side is, is when I was introduced to my first invasion of my personal space. Um, I remember when it first happened when I was first physically violated and it wasn't no introduction, no fingering and no any of that. It was just a straight up 
penetration the first time out. I remember blacking out. I remember everything going white first and then blacking out. And when I went to my father and told him what happened, um, I got slapped away from the table. My mother um, didn't say anything. I don't know if it's because she was shocked or whatever. But the horror in that story was the fact that when he did it, a perpetrator was standing at our kitchen window and he saw the whole thing. So he already knew that from that act that he was empowered, that he could continue on his tirade and be unchecked. This went on from the time I was five and a half until I was nine. Um, in that time, I had attempted to commit suicide. Um, he had me violate two of my brothers. Um, I watched him violate his cousin, two of his cousins. Another babysit, uh, another uh, girl that was being babysitted by his grandmother as well. And um, about my brother's situation, that situation happened once, and that's when I really, really knew that something was not right with that. That was also the first time I attempted to commit suicide, because something about that whole situation made me sick, as if it weren't bad enough that it was happening to me. The fact that he would have me co-sign and hurting somebody that I cared about bothered me. So that's another story for another time. Um, that takes me in places. But um, suffice it to say, it made me all the more determined to be an advocate for sexual assault victims than ever because I've had the misfortune of being on both sides of that at a very early age. When it finally, uh, what made it finally stop was I went to a friend. I think I had about had enough. And he told me to go to my mother. So I was like, well, I already, you know, told my father. He said, no, 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 go to your mother. So I was afraid. And he said, I'll go with you. Now, he lived all the way uptown in Flag Project, came all the way down to Cherry Hill with his mother sat beside me and held my hand while I told my mother what happened. And uh, suffice it to say, she went off. Um, she approached my babysitter. She approached his grandson. It was kind of casually swept under the rug as if, you know, this is one of those things that little girls go through. Um, as if it was some type of rites of passage. Looking back on it, I'm, I wonder often was my mother also a victim, which is why she was able to dismiss it so casually. But anyway, once it was all resolved, I was to never speak of it again. I think that's damaging because it didn't prevent me from getting raped at least three other times after that, uh, further on in my life, in my, early, in my late teens and in my early 20s. But um, it really... Because you don't talk about it, it really informs how you deal with relationships. It really informs how you deal with your sexuality. It absolutely informs um, how you feel about yourself at the core. I didn't come to terms with all of it 
until I was in my 30s. And I was able to even say the words that it even happened. And thank God I had a friend who was willing to listen to my story without judgment. And I was able to write a play about it. I was able to go out to workshop it and perform it on stage. The last time I did it was in 2000. And to be honest with you, um, it was a challenge to do the piece again because it did trigger a lot of stuff that unbeknownst to me, that was what was happening. What's insidious about being a, a, a survivor is that you never know when those triggers are going to come up. Last year, I had to have surgery um, because I was misdiagnosed with cancer. Long story short, because it was ovarian, those that all that stuff triggered up all over again. And I, I had the presence of mind to go into counseling and revisit all this stuff, all these secrets. And while I don't think you ever get over it, over it, I think what it does, what it has done for me was make me very compassionate um, when it comes to other people who are survivors. It makes me very compassionate to young girls who are extremely, extremely angry, and it appears for no reason. I can almost assure you that in almost every instance, if you come across an angry teenager, she's been violated, and she hasn't found the language to speak to her pain. Um, I have been a child advocate for the last 42 years because of that. It's because I recognize myself in little girls. I recognize myself in little boys who have been traumatized at the hands of someone else. I think my offering I would like to share with this is you can't keep that a secret. You don't owe anybody your story. I'm not saying that you have to blast it across Facebook, but the other side of it is you can't hold on to that either because by doing that, give your perpetrator permission to reoffend, and you don't give yourself permission to grieve the person who's been violated, namely yourself, because a part of you got lost in that, a part of you was destroyed in that, and you have a right to grieve your own story. You, have, you don't give yourself permission to do that, and you don't give yourself a healing space to make it... Um, to explore the possibilities of what can be. So if there's anything that I would offer by way of positivity is it's okay to get some time on the couch. It really is. It's okay to, to get help. It's okay to find someone that you trust. And I do recognize that trust is a serious, serious thing. But it's okay to find somebody that you trust to share that with. It's okay to create circles of, of people who share your story. Because I honestly believe that because we are who we are, there's, there's um, medicine, if you will, in 
the camaraderie of shared stories. And somewhere in the midst of all of that is our healing. So, my name is Jackie Terry, and that's my story. Hey there, um, my name's Austin Higgins, and I am a rape survivor. Um, now, um, I have been exposed to rape from quite a few times, more times than, you know, people probably should, because it's not ever a good thing, really. Um, I want to say it's been five times, and, you know, starting from the beginning, I would have never actually expected, um, or classify what happened as rape. I actually had to have it brought to my attention that it was rape. Um, and when that happened, you know, I, I just kind of broke down because it all just sort of fell into place. And I'm thinking, oh, if that time was rape, then, oh, shit, well, that time, and that time, so that was definitely rape. You know, like, I, it was just a constant um, realization over and over again. And even now, every now and again, I still, you know, step back and I um, think about situations. So, but the two that were the most jarring, um, you know, and it really, you know, was the whole bottoming and topping thing, you know, penetrating and re-penetrating, you know, uh, rape has some more dimensions. Um, but the ones that were the most jarring to me were the ones that were um, the closest related to a heteronormative standard of rape in which I guess I was penetrating somebody, um, but I was the one that was raped. And so, of course, this is, this is seen as um, the mythological aspect or form of rape, you know, where, where people say that men cannot be raped, uh, people um, without, like, drugs and whatnot and, and shit like that. It's just, everyone thinks that rape is this super terrifying thing where, you know, you're held down and everything goes in slow motion and lights flicker, you know, it's some horror movie shit, but really it's not the case. It's just me saying no, and you saying, but why? <laughs> or me saying no, and you saying, yeah, you know, and it's a, it's a shitty thing, but it's real. So these two, these two circumstances, the first one, they both involve the same person, um, which I, I will not refer to. Um, but yeah, so this person um, came to me under the guise of friendship. I initially approached him for friendship. He turned me down because I wasn't, um, quote-unquote, like, a cop. And I said, okay, that's fine. Um, that has nothing to do with anything, but you can do that. And so then maybe a week later, he hits me back up, asked me what I'm doing, and wanted to hang out all of a sudden. I'm like, okay, I guess, sure, whatever. And so we ended up hanging out one time. We started playing video games. Not that it is, but that's okay. Let me stop taking pop shots. But, um... We ended up watching a movie, and so I, I'm a cuddle fiend. I do shit all the time. It's everything I love in life. And so I was cuddling him, and he starts pressing up against me. I'm like, okay, well, you said that you were not attracted to me. What the fuck happened? And um, just from then on, the dynamic changed. So that was the first time we ever interacted. That was not rape. That was just sex. Um, that being said, the next few or two were just... So, the second time we were hanging out, maybe a week later, um, everything was fine, and then midway through, all of a sudden, I start coming down with something. I, I get feverish. I feel, like, terrible, 
I'm like kind of freaked out about it. And I just, I don't know. Um, so we hang out, we walk around, we go back to the house. Um, and then I really professionally, I mean, like my, my worry, I'm, I'm worried that this came all of a sudden. I'm re- I feel really terrible. And I can't explain it. And so he goes through a list of, of my symptoms. And I'm like, he's like, like, you have this? I'm like, yeah, I have that. I'm like, yeah, I have that. Yeah, I have that. And he goes, it might be HIV. And I freak the fuck out because I'm like, wait, what? What? You know, I'm like, why would you even say it? Why? And, and so I'm just in shambles. And I don't know what to do with myself. And, I, and I'm just, I'm just freaking out. I'm like, why would you do that? So he continues to go on and say like, yeah, maybe this, maybe this, maybe this. But it's, it's probably, it's probably HIV. And I'm like, why would you say that to me? And I'm freaking out because like, it's the middle of the night. I can't go get tested all of a sudden from some fucking clinic at 11 o'clock at night. And um, so I think I started sobbing because I'm just, I was so worried. I'm a, I'm a hypochondriac. You know, I just, I, I can't get that shit out of my mind. Um, and so while I'm like crying, he starts to like try to, he like grabs my face and tries to kiss me. I'm like, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? What, like, are you, I, I'm, I'm not ready for this and he's just like no it's like this like let me help you let me help you and i'm like i don't want you stop i don't want your help like why are you like I'll, it'll make you it'll get your mind off of it i'll make you feel better i'm like i really just don't want to do this and he just kept going and he grabs me and i just don't like i'm just and i just don't know and i'm like it's fine like if it'll just make you fucking stop i didn't say that in my mind i'm just thinking like it'll make you fucking stop so we can just go to sleep and I can get the shit done tomorrow, then yeah, sure. And we interacted. But you know, initially, I wouldn't have thought anything of that. I thought that was just me. If anything, I thought me saying or giving the final, yes, fine, go. I thought that was just okay. But it's not. I thought that that would just constitute me that, like forfeiting and saying, oh yeah, okay, this is, this is consent. That's not how it works. I learned that afterwards. However, that was the first one. That one was that one was bad enough. The second one was even what some people classify as actual rape. Um, so I've been suffering with vertigo for the last two years of my life. Um, really bad vertigo. So at this point in life, I um, I experienced that again. And after that, after that week, and after that experience with him, I did contact manipulation. Like I just didn't want to hang out anymore. That something felt wrong about that. But I kept going. Of course, I did not have HIV and everything, but it didn't matter. It was a terrible taste in my mouth. And so it's the middle of the night. I feel terrible. I feel terrible. And he messages me saying that he wants to come over. And I'm like, dude, I, I, I'm, it's really not a good time. I promise you, I feel terrible. I feel awful. I am not good for company. Like, I wouldn't be able to do anything for you. You just probably shouldn't come over. And he just, he just persists and keeps going. And, like, I just, like, I don't have to do anything. We, we need to just, like, sit and talk. I'm just really bored. I want to hang out with somebody. I'm like, fine, fine, come over. That's fine. I'm going to lay here like like a rock and do nothing and talk to you, I guess, because the room is spinning. But that's okay. You can just come over and do what you got to do. And so he comes over, and we, you know, speak. <laughs> and he gets in bed with me. And I'm like, okay. This is already what's happening because <laughs> I gave, I told you. So, um, we 
just lay there. We talked a little bit. Next thing I know, congratulations. And I'm like, what's going on? What? Why? 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 Why are you doing this to me? What's happening? And he just starts playing with me, and I feel terrible and aroused at the same time. But like, that's just because of the literal physical interaction. Like that—that that is the only thing causing me to be aroused. And I'm just so irritated and confused. Like, why? Why are you more important to me? Why? Why does? Why did? Why? Why don't you actually care about me? I don't understand. You know, like, why? And so he keeps going. I'm saying, dude, please, like, I can't. I just don't. I if I turn over the wrong way at the wrong time, I feel like I'm falling off of a building. You need to stop. And he keeps going and keeps going. And at this point, I'm I'm erect, and I just uh, but I'm nauseous and erect, which is a terrible combination. And I keep saying, dude, please, like, just, you gotta stop. And eventually he just gets up and mounts me. Like, full penetration mounts me and rides me. And I'm just, I'm just so mortified. At that point, I'm like, dude, do what you gotta do. Do what you have to do to get out of my house. And as soon as you leave, I promise you, I will never speak to you again. Ever, ever, and you know, I just went with this mindset for all these years of heteronormative shit. You know, where it's like that could never, like, I was penetrating him. I couldn't have been raped. Like, I was the one giving, not receiving, all that bullshit. But that's just not the case. It's not the case. Um, it really just isn't. And I confronted him. He hit me up on that the other day. I confronted him. Um, usually I ignore him, I said, fuck that. And I explained to him that he raped me. The first thing he said was, I'm so sorry that you feel that way. And I'm like, okay, so I don't think you understand. So let's just dig deeper into this. I, I continue calling it rape, and he says, can you just, can we just please stop calling it rape? Because, like, it makes you feel, like, really bad, and it was not, like, rape. I'm like, oh, it wasn't rape? It wasn't? That's, that's not what happened? And so I explained to him, um, I go through the situation, and he just seems to, I don't know, he gets, he gets it, um, but he says, no, that's not rape. No, like, you penetrated me, you were in a position of power. And I'm like, I was in a position of power on my back, sick? Is that what happened? That's not how power dynamics work. That's not how that works. He, I explained, it's the same situation where a man will be raped by a woman. And he said, that's that's not even a thing unless the, the man is drugged. And I'm like, okay, now I just know that you're not even savable because, like, this will never get through your mind. And the worst thing, before I close this out, the worst thing that he said, he said, we were at home with your parents. If it was rape, why didn't you call out to them? Why didn't you scream for help? If it was rape, why, like, why not after I left did you not file, like, a lawsuit? Why didn't you send the police after me? Why, why didn't you do that? And at that point, I truly knew that he was not going to understand. This was not rape in his mind. And it didn't matter how I felt. It didn't matter what actually happened. He's not going to get it. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Because no matter how shitty the situation actually was, I learned from it. I'm a better person because of it. And it's been able to give me a filter 
that allows me to sweat out the shit from the gyms, you know? So, uh, those are just two of my experiences. And I just hope that somebody, or that this could get out to somebody, help somebody understand, you know, yeah, that was rape, wasn't it? You know? <laughs> Have kind of a realization that how dynamics are, how dynamics and consent are really complicated things. But, well, actually, no, they're not. No, they're not. That's the lesson. <laughs> that is not. <laughs> if I say no, your answer should be no. Doesn't matter. Like, if I'm coerced into saying yes, it's not consent. Point blank, period. That's it. So, uh, I hope this helps somebody. It was the fall of my freshman year of high school, and I was uh, in the band room with a, uh, a friend, um, and I, I don't remember exact details on how we ended up outside um, in the woods, but it quickly went from, yeah, we're having a cool conversation, we can talk, to now I'm on the ground fighting someone to get them off something that I was not ready for at 14. Um, and, you know, today it would have officially been called a gate rape or an acquaintance rape, as most of them are. Um, but back then, of course, it wasn't that. Um, it didn't have a name. It didn't have a, a you know, you, you couldn't, you know, there was no way to discuss it with any adult. And then, of course, when you're at that age and you haven't spoken to your parents about sex or anything at all, you know, telling my parents, so I have not, I've never really spoke about it with them and, or any adult at this point. Um, and it, the ramifications of that event still affect me today in how close or how intimate I can get with anybody that I deal with. Um, I never said anything back then, and I wish I had, because I uh, found out, I want to say a year or so later, that he did it to another girl on our campus, on our, at our high school. Um, and it was at that point someone pressed charges against him, and I believe because he was a juvenile, I believe he did some juvenile time, but, but yeah. Yeah, it's interesting when, um, you see things from a 40 year, 30 year lens. Yeah, 30 year, almost 30 years ago. <clears throat> and maybe if I start talking about it more, I will actually start feeling like I can get away from it. Uh. And I guess the one thing I can be thankful for is um, as I've gotten older, the gentlemen that I have dated and um, have become intimate with our understanding of my limitations and how I can express how I can how I can make love and have sex in the ways that I can do it. I can, you know, I'm open, but you got to let me get there on my own, and that's and that's pretty much the big issue, and whether or not I can trust you at all. That's all I have right now.
I wanted to share my story um, about being assaulted, I guess you would say sexually assaulted, because of the Me Too thing that's going around right now on social media. And truthfully, I really didn't think about this incident at all until this came up. And I was like, this is a great example for people um, that it's not just someone who's raping you. It's not just someone on the street who's harassing you or grabbing you. It can be someone that you've known for a long time. And I want people to know how prevalent this is and how ingrained it is in some men's minds that it's okay just to, to touch somebody. So what happened to me, this was a very long time ago. It was, uh, it was probably like 2007, I'm thinking. I was at a family function. It was a holiday gathering. We have a lot, my in-laws have a big, we all have a big family, a big, crazy, loud, funny family. And they come from all different areas for these celebrations. And it was just a regular holiday celebration like usual. We had just arrived. We were standing in the kitchen talking to some people. And this particular husband of a relative came around the corner like he always does. Hey, and hugged my brother-in-law and hugged somebody else and went in to hug me. And when he did so, he slid his arm under my arm and grabbed my breast. He cupped my breast with his open hand. It was not an accident. He did not brush up against me. And I, I really can't tell you what happened in my brain when he did that, but my automatic response is to hit you. <laughs> so I pushed him back. I literally pushed him back and yelled something like, hey, you grabbed me, like just like that. My husband was standing right beside me when this happened. And everybody was talking. It was chaotic. If you can just imagine, it wasn't like everybody was standing there quietly observing this. And he goes, oh, it's an accident. It was an accident. And, and I was just standing there. And when it happened, after that happened, his wife came around the corner. And she has a big personality. So everybody was laughing and talking. And I just stood there like, what do I do? What do I say? I'm in, around family. My father is here. My mother is here. If my father, and I kept thinking in my head, if I say something, I'm going to ruin this whole day. If I say what happened out loud and tell people, I'm going to ruin this whole day. And his wife is going to freak out. His wife is going to be livid. His daughters are here. My father is here. My father will skin him alive. There is absolutely. There is no doubt my father would spend the rest of his days wanting to kill this man. And I, I, I'm like, do I want to bring this kind of animosity and stress into this day? You know, he grabbed my breast, and I wasn't raped. I wasn't, I, I was violated, but I wasn't, you know, damaged for life or anything like that. But it was horrible, and, I, and that was my first reaction. So I didn't say anything. And I just went the rest of the day, he stayed away from me, and I just looked at him, you know, avoiding him, and he was avoiding me. And this happened for future family things, uh, things that I hadn't told anybody at all for a while. And when I finally did, it was probably like maybe a year later, I told my in-laws, and the reaction was even more bizarre, you know. It was, some of them laughed. Uh, you know, oh my God, he's such a pervert. That was what they said. Oh, he's a pervert. Like, oh, okay, it's okay for him to grab people that he's related to randomly. <laughs> I mean, he's not related to me, but, you know, through marriage. And somebody else said, well, he's probably, you, you have nice breasts. He's probably been looking at your breasts all these years and figured he would go for it. And then somebody else said, um, what did they say? Don't 
she'll kill him. She hates that kind of stuff. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why am I, why do I have to carry all of this? He, he did not give a crap. And that's what makes me really angry. You know, after, after the shock wore off, I was angry. I was like, why did you think after all these years, I've known this dude for like 10 years, why all of a sudden would you just have the audacity to grab me like that? I, I can't even understand. I still don't understand. And another family function we had, he leaned in to hug me. And I said, no, sir, I cannot trust you. That's what I said to him. Nobody was listening. And since then, he's been very, you know, kind of that cheerleader hug where we just kind of touch each other's shoulders. But this happens. You know, you never acknowledged it. You, I can't, nobody takes it seriously. And for me, I feel like when you do something like that, and I'm so shocked that you would even think that, I start looking at you differently. Like, I told people because I said, you know, he has daughters. Um, if he does this to me, I'm not saying he's doing anything to his daughters, but if that's in your mind that you can just randomly grab people like that, who else has he grabbed? And he's not going to be alone with my child. That's not going to happen. I, I just can't trust you anymore. So now I just don't trust you. And it's this cloud over everything with him. So, no, it ha- I haven't had to seek therapy for it. You know, I've, it's not the first time somebody's inappropriately touched me. Certainly it's happened many times in my life, especially as an entertainer. But it was just the fact that this is a person where my guard was totally down. It was not, I was not even in that mode of thinking because, like I said, I've known him for so long. And it just bothered me that people didn't take it seriously, that I, oh, don't say anything. Like, what do you mean don't say anything? What are you guys going to do? What what should I do? (laughs) Like, I'm carrying this. No, it happened. And, you know, everybody knows. I I guess he's kind of a crazy guy, but he's kind of a touchy-feely guy anyway. But I still was not in any kind of way expecting that to happen. And I just wanted to share that story because I feel like a lot of times, when people hear this stuff and they, you know, women are telling their stories online and people are sometimes asking them, you know, what were you wearing? And I was wearing jeans, tennis shoes, and a turtleneck sweater. I was not naked. I was not, my breasts weren't hanging out in any kind of way. It was a family function. And it really shouldn't matter if I was wearing a low-cut dress or whatever. He does not have the right to touch me in any kind of way. So I wanted to share it. Because I just feel like people don't realize how common this is, how it's just so, you know, we can't walk to our cars in a parking lot without someone yelling at us. We can't, we can't just live without somebody thinking they are entitled to be in our space. They're entitled to make us smile. They're entitled to speak to us. They're entitled to touch us or look at us or follow us. And I don't think people know how prevalent it is and I just really wanted to get that out I wanted people to understand it can be in your family it can just be a joke to people it's not even taken seriously it's okay for this dude to touch me and not that my family are bad people or anything like that but it's just ingrained in people's minds this is how oh this is how he acts no that's not that's not good (laughs) we can't we have to make this stop and you know I'm trying to teach my kids to that no one's allowed to touch you. You're not allowed to put your hands on anybody, male, female, whoever it is, without permission, and they are not allowed to touch you.
share my story today. Well, my name is Corey George, and the first experience of sexual assault that I remember occurred around the age of five or six. And I'm a native of, of, of Houston and, and Louisiana. So my family travels back and forth to visit each other. And at the time, I was living with my grandmother. And we were traveling back home to visit our family in Louisiana. And I happened to have to sleep in my, in my great uncle's home, which at the time for a five-year-old, it looked like a castle. It was a big, it was a big airy home with huge bedrooms. Um, and I remember having to sleep with my other cousin, who was about seven years older than me. And I, and I recall that the night was very dark, because once the, once the sun goes away, the home is very dark, somewhat spooky for a five-year-old. And I just remember being woken, uh, well, actually being awakened by searing pain, and didn't even realize that I was being penetrated. I knew there, were, there was pain going on. And as quickly as it happened, that's how long it felt. So although it may have been a few seconds or a few moments, but for me, it felt like, you know, several minutes to an hour because of the pain and the confusion of not knowing what was going on. Because, again, I'm awakened by it, so I have to get my mind right to understand that it's not a dream and then to understand that this is actually happening. And in the morning, it was as if my life changed. At six years old, I became highly aware of everything around me. You know, you, uh, you know normally as, as, as a six-year-old, you don't care about anything other than what affects you. You know, your toys, your food, your love, your parents, all these things. You only worry about these things if they affect you because at that age, you, age, you, uh, uh, you should be carefree. But I was careful. So I was, I, I was careful. And I remember waking up and not understanding a damn thing that happened the night before. Didn't speak of it because I didn't know what to call it. I didn't have a language for it. I knew that, A, I was in pain from the night before. I felt violated. I felt robbed of something and didn't know what it was until years later I would understand it. Um, that was the only incident by that person. And then, you know, I think that one of the immediate effects outside of just being careful was I became more observant of who I was. Because, again, you know, usually kids usually don't care about those things. I, be I began to care about how I looked how I felt, how I sounded, how I came off to people. Um, even at that time, I was battling a, a, a severe speech impediment, which rendered me quiet sometimes. So not only did, did I not have a language, I was not always feeling comfortable to speak out anyway. I do remember um, being raised in church somewhat, so, you know, I actually learned that uh, sex between two men was, was somehow damning me to hell. But no one made a provision about rape. No one told me what rape was, so I instantly thought I was going to hell. So at six or seven, having that burden to carry, uh, trying to be a carefree kid that should be outside jumping rope or swimming in the pool, I felt I was going to hell at seven. So my life changed because I became more introspective than the average child should be. Um, I, began to, I began to inspect who I was, and I felt that whatever I felt, Everyone else felt that about me. So, if, so, so for example, if I felt um, used, if I felt ugly, I felt that everyone who saw me felt that way. So it did hamper a lot of my relationships with my male family. Um, but going forward, after the age of six, I was also, uh, I, I also experienced 
sexual assault randomly between the age of 6 and 13. Well, 6 and 12, honestly. And all, um, and it was, it was, it was at the hands of three male, uh, well, three males in my family, first of all. And the fourth perpetrator was a friend of the family. And for me, the most, the, the most heinous one was at the hands of an abuser that I knew who abused my cousin, a female cousin. So in my head, I felt like the violation was going to happen because my family did not do enough to protect her, so why would they protect me? That was one of the reasons why I didn't say anything is because if you could not protect her years ago, what made me feel secure that you would protect me? So I began to just be okay with it happening. And as weird as it sounds, it was more like I could I could expect it, so let me do what I need to do to get through it. I began to not say blackout, but to imagine something else happening while the abuse was going on. And it, it and it allowed me to get through it, but the, the but the overall effect on my personality was staggering. As I mentioned before, it hampered a lot of my relationships with with my with my with my family family on the male side. It also hampered how I saw my father, I, uh, only because I didn't discover years later that I had a resentment because I didn't feel protected. I didn't feel like no one in my family noticed that I did change. I knew I changed. I became quieter. I became more withdrawn. Um, I was always with the females in my family, not because I felt like a female, but because they never violated me. So I could trust being around them. So of course, being around ladies, you pick up their ways, their personalities. So then it became, okay, now he's gay. <laughs> and they didn't understand that a lot of my personality came from those who I was, hang those who I was hanging around with. I thought that was gay before I was molested. So it wasn't about me turning gay. It was about me understanding who I was by being influenced by the people I was around. Um, I didn't play, you know, I didn't play contact sports. I I oftentimes got an F in gym class because I wouldn't change clothes because I hated the way I looked. I felt marginalized as a male because I was violated so many times by males. And when I talk about violation, I'm not talking about just the molestation, but how it happened. Um, in one incident, I was given beer. I think I was age 9 or 10. And I was drunk. Um, I was made to be drunk in order to be violated. And then I woke up and realized something had happened because I didn't feel right. Um, and in other cases, I was picked out amongst the amongst the younger cousins. And I oftentimes now in my adult life wonder was I targeted because they assumed I was gay, and that I would be an easy target because my family at the time was so disjointed. At seven, my grandmother died, so so it seems as though that side of the family just went to hell. So I was kind of the residual child. Everyone was having their own issues, but who's but who has control over Corey? So I did feel like a loner. So I think part of that was the perpetrator's eye on me, meaning he was the wayward child. I moved around so many times that I couldn't keep friends. And I think part of it was I got used to moving around and then dealing with the abuse. I became my own island. The only person I could trust was myself. And throughout my teenagers, it was horrible because I can't recall any good time in my in my teen years. The only time that I had a great time, and I talked about this recently, was in my teenth grade English class because that was when the writer in me was awakened, and that was when someone noticed that I had a, a gift. And I had been writing since I was six or seven but didn't know that writing would save my life and possibly the life of other people going down the road. 
And my English teacher noticed what I was doing, and he said, you have a gift, I want you to keep at it. And that was the first time in my life at 14 that someone recognized something outside of my physical body and said, you have something. And, and, and so again, I didn't know that that would be the vehicle to save my life. And uh, all throughout high school, it was miserable because my aunt who was raising me or tried to, uh, God bless her, and, and I love her dearly, she, be, uh, she became a crack addict. So I had to grow very fast. Not, and at 14, I was two years out of my abuse cycle because I put a stop to it at 12. Finally, I said no. But I'm still, but I'm still in my formative uh, male years and dealing with all of that at the same time. I started to experience my first bouts bouts of depression and mental illness and didn't know it. I didn't know until I was an adult that that was my start to my my bouts with depression. And I'm surprised that I'm still alive because there were times that I, I, I honestly asked myself, who would miss me when I'm gone? Who would miss me if I died today? So I had to answer the question for myself so I could save myself. And being the oldest of seven kids total, I felt like, you know, on one hand, I tried to justify me going through it by saying, well, at least it was my brothers and sisters. Maybe I took the, you know, maybe I took the blame because I was protecting them. Maybe I let it happen because I didn't want them to touch my brothers and sisters. So I had to make up reasons to validate my experience. And they were all the wrong reasons because you can never validate, validate your experience with abuse. And that's something I had to learn as well, too. Uh, so I kept myself in a mental prison. Um, and how to, and and it continued to affect all of my relationships, especially with men. I didn't have a strong attachment to men, although I was gay and I wanted to be with a man. I didn't trust them, so there was this battle between how can I love something or want to love something, but can't trust it as well too. Um, and and that also translated into how I dated. You know, becoming an adult and being on my own since I was seventeen, at least mentally and physically on my own. My daddy issues were the thing that crept up in my relationships because I didn't feel protected as a child. So I inadvertently sought out men who I felt would not not love me per se, but protect me from everything else that I had to go through because I got tired of protecting myself. I got tired of being my own Superman. And inadvertently, at this age, I can say that I don't think I was seeking love. I think I was seeking validation. So there were some unfortunate incidents where I would date guys and... They knew that I needed validation, so it was a sword that they wielded over me. So whenever I want to leave or, you know, make things better for myself, they held it over my head that they made me. And I believed them. So I stayed and I endured things that I should not have endured. So I take part I take part of the blame for that because of where I was. Uh, and the thing about sexual assault for me that it that it did for me is that it even changed my sexual um my uh, my sexual story or my sexual need, and not to be graphic at all, but some of the things that I was desiring sexually was linked to what I had experienced or didn't experience um, in my assault. I um, I was not attracted to anybody who would seemingly take control over me in sex because that's what the that's what I experienced a loss of control. So anyone that made me feel like I lost control during sex or any type of intimacy, I was shy away from. I had to feel like I had. I, I had to feel like I knew what was coming. I had some control over it while giving myself away in some kind of way. So I needed a fair balance. Um, it took me a while to understand the the total of the totality of what I was going through because I didn't really understand that a lot of my issues personally was rooted in my sexual assault until I was in my mid-20s. And 
it was the way I saw myself. I couldn't look in the mirror for you know for too long because what I saw staring back at me was an old used boy. Um, but what other people saw was something different. They saw an attractive young man. I didn't see that. So people thought I was being humble and that I was being gracious, but no, I was I was hard on myself. Because when you start to have your your your, your first experiences at six and they're unwanted, you don't understand what sex is. You, like for me I didn't understand how can I be intimate and sexual but I'm but I don't like sex that much. So I had to learn how to appreciate who I was and understand what I wanted out of any type of intimate relationship. Um, there was and, and there were definitely some scars. You know, like I said, the low self esteem, the self doubt, the low self image, the, the low self worth, meaning I set my bar low for my own achievements because I didn't know that it was possible for me to ever have more because I started off life having less. Um, it was difficult because when I look back now, I burned a lot. I burned a lot of relationships at the at, at the edges because I wasn't clear on my healing. I had so much resentment for my family because no one protected me. Every symptom that you read online, almost um, as it relates to male victims of sexual assault, I had it. As a kid, but nobody saw my change. I felt the change, but didn't know exactly what it was or what it was attributed to. But I felt no one noticed me. I felt I felt right through the cracks, and that's why I became a loner. People, so oftentimes I tell people I'm not a shy person, but I'm definitely a loner now because I was my superhero. I was, you know, my I was my own rock of Gibraltar, and it became exhausting because I didn't know how to. I didn't know how to let go. And when I did let go, it was like a firestorm. So on one hand, I'm calm and I'm, and I'm strong. But then when I found someone who I could let go with, it was like overload. I didn't know how to phase it in. So, and so when I cried, I cried hard. When I screamed, I screamed loud. But I had no barometer because it was like unyielded power. I didn't know how to let go safely because I ne- cause never felt like I had the opportunity. And so moving fast forward, in like my mid to late 20s, I started to understand um, who I was. I started to understand that in order to change who I was, I had to separate who I am from what had happened because they became one person. I was the assault. Everything, every choice I made, every every relationship that I had, every friendship that I formed was based on how that assault left me feeling about myself. So, for example, if I feel lowly about myself, my partner's must either be at the same level of level of lowliness or lower. I, and I was intimidated by people who seemed good. I was also intimidated by strong people. If you seem stronger than me, then I felt at any moment you could realize that although I appear strong, that I was crumbling at the seams and I was afraid to be let go. And also it tied into my fear of abandonment because as I mentioned earlier, I moved around a lot. I didn't have my dad around. Um, he was there physically, physically, but emotionally, he was he was unable to be there. And once I learned his story, I understood why. Um, but that, but I did not, but I, but I did not forgive the fact that he chose after that to not be there. So that affected me too. So you, so looking at dating, you're looking at the daddy issues, you're looking at the family issues and the issues with sexual assault. It made a hotbed of mess for me to even think that I could be to- that I could be totally committed, mind, body, and soul with another person if I didn't know what that mind, body, and soul was actually 
underneath all the mess. So again, I stated that I had to separate who I was from what had happened. And I began to do that as I began to actually commit to saying, I'm going to turn everything that I've gone through you know, into power and purpose. And it was a very slow process. But one day I woke up and I said, God, you didn't give me all of this just to burn. You, you did not give me all of these things to just die. You didn't. You did not create me just to suffer and die. So how, what do I do with this? Okay, I had to do the work. I had to be honest about what happened. I had to call rape rape. I had to call call it what it was. Give it a real title. I had to go back and pray to God for the understanding to to separate my condemnation from my assault and to and to stop further further hurting myself by condemning myself. That's the first, well, those are the first things I had to do. And I did it by writing. I started writing. I just started writing all of these things. I started started my training as a life coach probably about, I want to say, about 12 years ago. Because I said, if I'm going to get this back to people, I need to have a methodology. I need to be professional in this. I don't want to just tell my story and not give hope or give examples of what I did as tools to pass on the that are valuable tools. So as I became a coach, I began to unravel things more and say, wow, I can package this stuff, this horrible stuff, as success for someone else. And that's what I started doing. Um, I did not confront any of my perpetrators, but I did forgive. And I had to learn the truth of forgiveness. What it, for me, what it means is that I no longer wanted my incidents to, you know, in the past to dictate how I behaved in the future. And one thing that helps that is you forgive. Many people actually, many people actually walk in forgiveness, being so confused that forgiveness gives a pass to your perpetrators or to anyone that has violated you. And the truth I have to learn is that forgiveness is really the gift to yourself that says, "I'm going to break the chain that I'm expecting someone else to to unlock," because they can't unlock your own chain. And the chain really is you holding on to something and expecting someone else to feel what you feel about your incident. You know, if someone violates you. You you hope they feel bad because you still feel bad, and that's not always the case. And I and and one thing that caught and one thing that brought me there was when I would go visit my family, and I would see some 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 of my perpetrators just living, you know, laughing with the family, acting act as if nothing's wrong. And I was the only one holding on to what they did to me. I said, in order for me to get there, I have to somewhat do like they did. I had to let it go, but not because it would benefit them because it would benefit me. And it was a hard journey, but I had to say, in order for me to talk about these stories and not flinch, not cry, not get, you know, not get emotional, was to learn to tell it in a way that was beneficial and freeing. So forgiveness was, was for me that thing says, I'm not going to let you control my future. Even though I've never talked to you in 20, 30 years, you still have control over my life, and that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous for me. So forgiveness was a big deal. I had to forgive my father for not being there. And again, not giving them a hall pass because I never told anyone that I forgave them. So they so so they may go to their grave thinking I hate them. I don't hate them. I've actually prayed for everybody that I forgave that God turns them around. And and that's the God's honest truth. So forgiveness saved my life because once I forgave, I never had to tell the story the same way again. And I had to say that Although it was the worst years of my life, it bring, it you know it gave breath to my purpose, and my writing became the vehicle at first for my purpose. Because even then, I wasn't talking as clearly. I wasn't, I, I was not the best communicator because I was still under the grips of my speech impediment. But I could write my ass off. I could write a story and put you in the room, 
I can paint a wall and you can be part of the wall. And that was my gift. I said, well, now I'm going to turn my writing into motivation. And that was the moment I realized that it, that anything I write now is strictly for motivation and that's where the purpose comes through. Um, and I mentioned some time ago, I just started writing stuff and then it became my first book. It, you know, well, the first book I had out, which, well, well, the first and only book, which is in, which is in two versions, uh, Zero Stain. And I didn't know what the book was going to be. But at the end of my writing, I had 500 pages. <laughs> and I just wrote. And then, it, and then I pulled it down to about 260-something because I was writing a lot of the same thing. But it was more like a journal. But then the journal also included what was the light at the end of the tunnel. So every chapter is filled with some kind of adversity. But I leave the reader in the space where it's, oh, this is how I learned to come closer towards the light. Because really it's about coming closer towards the light. And some of us reach the full light, but some of us may not reach the full potential, but we reach some potential. And it's all about a choice. You know, it's all about how do I choose to use this? Some of us are not going to be advocates. Some, you know, some of us are not going to be healers, but, some, but all of us should be survivors. And I actually don't always like the term to say survive, because to me, surviving is just getting by. You know, it's just saying, okay, I have a C average in life. I'm just surviving. And I like to see people with an uptick and say, I'm thriving. You know, I want to see people thriving, meaning exceeding your own expectations. Because some of us walk into this incident with the expectations of, let me just get by. Let me just make it through the next day. Let me just hopefully have a good relationship. Let me hopefully be able to keep friends and not let these issues creep up and make me go back into my hole, make me judge people based on what I, what I think they should do for me, although they was never part of my incident. But I want them to thrive and say, I can have a great relationship. I can have great friendships. I can find some power in this. I can be a voice if needed at times when someone else needs me. And so I like to produce thrivers in my work. So as, and so whether I'm coaching, whether I'm doing a project, whether I'm doing a multimedia project, my goal is, 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 is to give people power back because that's where you thrive when you have power. And... Um, I've been fortunate enough to be able to write articles, to be on radio, to be on TV, and most recently on Fix My Life for this very subject. And I'm honored to have been asked to be on that because there's never been a platform that addressed it for black men specifically. And I say that because not only are we dealing with, the, with sexual assault, but any black man listening to this can understand that being a black man alone means that we have to forgive often in this country, in this world. We have to forgive often. We, we find ourselves forgiving every day. When you watch the news and something violates you as a person on a, on, on a mass scale, instantly we walk into forgiveness mode, meaning in order for me to make it through this day without being pissed off at every white person I go to work with, I gotta forgive before I go to work. I gotta forgive at lunch break. <laughs> and we do it so automatically that we don't understand that we're forgiving all the time. So when people talk about the angry black man, it's, it's always another culture. Well it's, well, well, it's always a white person saying angry black man, but I always tell them, we have to forgive you every day of our life because if not, we'd kill you. If not, we'd hurt you. You know, so the best I can offer people is peace from at least that incident because we're always in forgiveness mode. And, 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 and anyone listening today, when you watch the news and you see something crazy going on, you know, with race relations, you know in order for you to have a better day before leaving for work or riding in your car, you subconsciously have to forgive what you read and saw and and purposely not try to treat someone like you've been treated. So we have the forgiveness mechanism. We've always had it. That's why I say our culture is one of the strongest cultures 
because we use forgiveness as a way to make it through each day because we still know that these violations happen. So I try to enact that at, on a conscious level when it comes to sexual assault because truthfully, one in six men will, one in six men will experience this in their lifetime. So that means when you look at your group of friends or your family members or your associates at work, and you, and you can count on one hand, one in six will go through this. So these are your friends. But the problem is, not all of us actually disclose the incident. So, so the rate of disclosure is actually lower than the rate of, you know, than the rate of experience itself. So my work is to bring people, well, men, well, men more, men more specifically, to the place where they can say, uh, say me too. It happened to me. Now whether, now, whether they only say it back to themselves and admit what happened, or they say it publicly, the whole point is admitting it and getting the help. Because your help can be to a point where you never have to share the story but with those that need to know to help you. Because not everyone is built to go on a crusade about it. But you, but, but you owe it to yourself to be as free as you can. You owe it to yourself to have the life that you were promised. But the life only comes to you when you put in your work. It's okay to have faith. And I tell people, faith without work is dead. So if we learn this in church, then apply that to your life. So anything that you want, it, if you want the healing, you, uh, you pray for the provisions for that healing. But it only meets you when you're ready to open your heart and open your spirit and be truthful about the healing that you need. So I hopefully bring people closer to that healing. Can I stop this all from happening? I absolutely not. But I can give people the equipment, you know, the uh, what I call the soul equipment to start processing it hopefully sooner than later and also make it a comfortable conversation within our black families. That was one of my main reasons for going on, you know, on the uh, show was let's make this a more comfortable conversation because it is uncomfortable. It is very uncomfortable. And the feedback I've gotten from the show has been amazing because we, we're now having some of the conversations. So, you know, between the almost 1 million people that have watched it, there are a number of people. There are a number of people having the conversations, and that's where it starts. Because if you can have a conversation when your kids are young, and it happens, you know, and if Joe or if Sam experiences sexual assault at nine, hopefully he's been prepared in his family to come clean with anything, so he can go tell mommy and daddy that hey, someone violated me, without feeling like he's going to lose a part of his manhood, without feeling like he's going to be pushed off his side or told that men don't get raped. So. If it happens at nine and I tell you at ten, we've caught it to a point where it may not hamper your 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 whole development so drastically. But now I'm talking with guys in their fifties and sixties who are still reeling from it. Yes, you have a great job, you have what what looks like a great family, and everything on the outside looks good, but if you have the propensity to tell me that it touched you in a way that it you know, that it brought up memories, then you need healing. Because it, because it's affecting you somewhere, and oftentimes when and oftentimes when we go through tragedy or personal tragedy, we tend to want to disguise our pain with achievements. So yes, I've gone to college, I've done this, but what you, but who you are has nothing to to do with what has happened to you. As, as I said before, because when you're at home by yourself, you're not thinking of your degree, and you're not thinking of your money, you're not thinking of 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 the great job, but you are thinking of how you feel when no one's looking. So I want people to match the feeling that they have when someone's looking, when no one's looking. And that's where I feel like I'm better served. 
So now I use my coaching services and my speaking services to bring people closer to that mechanism of healing. So, and so whether it deals with assault or anything that they have adversity with, I want to bring people closer to understanding that, A, it's okay. B, you're not alone. C, there is help for men, although the marketing is not always geared towards men. There's help for men. And if not, we can always point you in a direction where your help lies, whether it's therapy, coaching, group sessions, um, you know, or or even a peer support group. We do need more of those resources, but there are some somewhere, like myself. Someone is doing the work that I'm doing in your area. How do, how do we connect you to that? And last I want to say is that although you've gone through something, there is no reason why you can't have every great thing in your life that you dreamed of. Because if God gave you the dream, dream and place it in your soul, it is already made for you. It's already there for you. So, um, and, and and that's it. I think that for me, that whole my whole story is to encourage that although something's happened on a dangerous level, there's always a prospect for that sunshine. And it's really, at the end of the day, it's about the choices. You have the choice to speak up about it or the choice to live through it. And once you speak up about it, now it brings you more power to say, now I can possibly seek my help. Once I seek my help now, I go from being a victim to a survivor to a thriver. And we want you to thrive. And I say we because there is a collection of men like me that want to get you there. My name is Aurora Lloyd, and this is my story of how I got raped. One night, I was coming from uh, the club. It was Black Pride out here in D.C. back in 2013. Um, and at the time, I couldn't secure a ride home. The location of the club, there were no taxis around, and this was before Uber had really hit. So I had just moved to D.C., so I just remembered, oh, you know, the metro runs all night. I'm good. So, you know, I hop on the train to get to the closest destination to my house, and I knew that I could just probably find a taxi there. Um, and so I ride on the train, and I make eye contact with this guy. Nothing too serious, nothing too big, but I uh, always ignore it because I don't do well with public advances. You know, I made it to my uh, stop. I was at Tacoma Station, and I went and decided to go into the 7-Eleven. Just so happened the guy got off the same stop as I did and followed me to the store and stopped me right before I walked in to, like, compliment me on how I looked and tell me I was really pretty and wanted to get a number from me. So, you know, I was like, okay, you know, you you you, you tried really hard. So, sure, why not? Gave him my number. He's like, well, what are you doing? I was like, well, I'm about to get something to drink and just chill here until the next bus comes. Because there's, once again, now, even at the station, there were no taxis. So, go inside. He was like, well, you don't have to wait by yourself. He was like, I'll wait with you. I was like, no, you don't have to do that. Like, that's, no, it's really nice, but you don't have to do that. He was like, no, it's cool. He's like, you shouldn't be out here by yourself. So, you know, we go into the store. I get something to snack on. Come out. I sit the bus station. And for like 10, 15 minutes, we're just talking and talking. He's telling me about himself. I'm telling him about myself, where I'm from, and how many did he see? Tell me what hey, where he's from. And he came from a party, so he's still like slightly drunk. 
all this stuff. And, you know, something in my spirit says, check the times to see what the next, when the next bus is coming. So I look over, and to my surprise, although the trains were running to, like, in the morning, the bus, the particular bus I needed, actually stopped running at midnight, and here it is at like two something in the morning. And so I instantly was just like, you know, oh shit, like what am I gonna do? Like, how the fuck am I gonna get home now? I was like, because it's too dark, and I don't know my way to be like on a walk there, even if it's like a 30 minutes an hour walk, and it's dark as fuck. So I'm like, all right, well, what am I gonna do? He looks, he was like, what's wrong? I was like, uh, my bus doesn't come, you know. It's done for the night. He was like, well, why don't you just go to Georgia Ave? You know, this is before I knew Georgia Ave was like a main strip. He was like, go to Georgia Ave. There should be plenty of taxis. I was like, okay, which way is Georgia Ave? He points it out. He was like, yeah, if you go this way, make a left here, blah, 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 you'll be there. I was like, okay, you know, thank you. And he um, he walks up behind me and like, he grabs me. He's like, wait, don't you don't need to do it by yourself. And he, was, and he felt, he was like, I was, I was freezing cold in the middle of the night. So I was freezing um and so he was like yo you're freaks and he was like he gave me his jacket and was like come on i'll walk with you i'll walk with you there you know so i was like okay cool you know i'm thinking oh all right he's not he's not too much of a creep he's actually being somewhat of a gentleman it's really cool it's really sweet so we get back we're walking and we're back to having our regular conversation things are cool and so you know we get to the park or a park um and he's like, hey, can we take a second? I just need to, like, sit down for a minute. And I'm like, you know, sure, not a big deal. That's fine. We can we can do that. I let him sit. He was like, you're not going to come sit with me? I was like, no, not really. I'm good. I'm just really trying to get home. And so he was like, well, he was like, come on, just come sit. And so I go to sit next to him. He, like, positions me to sit on top of him. So instantly, I'm like, all right, I see where this is going. I took off his jacket. I was like, yeah, you know, I'm not, I'm not like what you think I am or who you think I am. He was like, what do you mean? I was like, I'm not a girl. I'm like, I'm actually a guy. He was like, oh, for real. And he just like, then grabbed my wrist and held it. He was like, oh, well, you know, this is going to happen anyway. So pulls me down and forces me to the actual floor. Um... And decides to, like, start, like, ripping off. I had leggings on at the time. So he decides to start ripping off my leggings and trying to force himself inside of me. Being the person I am, I did a lot to try to put up a struggle and a fight. Um, but it actually was hurting because he, like, really was, like, putting his, like, his, either, like, his, his elbow or his knee, like, really in my back, like, to really not just pin me, but to, like, put me in pain and so as he attempted I was just like look can you just just put a condom on at least like if you're really going to sit here and do this like please just put a condom on it more than anything he doesn't care he doesn't listen he goes along and still keeps going so he like try keeps trying to force himself inside of me but I'm still really pushing it and he, he got in a couple of times but he couldn't he couldn't stay in i would never like allow him to stay in. i kept moving um he ultimately got really really frustrated um like pushed my head back down and then he went and took my what is it my wallet yeah i had a cell phone wallet at the time he took my cell phone wallet and this had my cars my id my cell phone like he just he took it and ran 
Um, so I, trying to catch him, <laughs> like hurry up, hurried up, and like put on my own, my my underwear and my leggings. I'm mad as hell, and I went to run after him. Ran for a good five seven minutes, and then I lost him because he like cut off into some like alleyway street or whatever. Um, and so after leaving him. I couldn't find him. I was stuck, and I was scared, and I was traumatized, and I was crying. And so I was walking around these streets that I had no idea where I was, and I told, I ran into this woman in her truck, and she was like, well, what's wrong with you? What's wrong? What happened? And I was like, I just was raped and robbed, and I just I just want to find the police station. And I was like, can you please take me? And she was like, I have to get to work. She was like, I'm sorry, but I really have to get to work. She was like, but I can point out to where you should, where you can go. So I was in utter shock, but I was like, okay, you know, where do I go? She pointed it out. She was like, go that way. So I make my way, I think, to a, like a Safeway parking lot or a giant parking lot, some, some superstore market situation parking lot, and I'm still crying, I'm still shivering, I'm still shook, and a taxi guy drives past me, and he was like, what's wrong? I was like, I, I just need to get to the police station, I just really, really need to get to the police station. I was raped and robbed. He says, okay, let's go, I'll, I'll take you, it's right up the street. So I hop in the taxi with him, he, he says, okay, I'm gonna take you. We get there, and you know, to my surprise, I... We're driving in like the driveway of the parking of the police station, and it's pitch black. It's pitch black. It's dark. It looks like no one is in there whatsoever. And so we're like looking around. He was like, "I think it's actually closed." And I was like, "That's crazy. I've never known a you know a police station to be closed at any time of the day." But whatever. And he was like, "Well, where where is it that you live?" I was like, "Well, I live, you know." back in another direction going back into maryland and he was like well i can take you home and i was like i I don't have money to pay you i don't i don't have anything he literally robbed and took everything from me so he was like it's okay let's just get you home so i'm like all right cool i explained to him that i live back by tacoma station um and that if he follows a certain road i can like remember how to get there we follow that road and about like 10 minutes into the ride, um, he sees I'm still kind of shooken up and I'm still crying a little bit. And he starts rubbing my leg. And he's like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He starts calling me baby and like, hey, it's going to be all right, baby. You're going to be okay. And his hand starts reaching th- further into my thigh. And I put my face in my hand and I'm just like, you got to be fucking kidding me. Like, you can't be serious right now. So I... Let I just I let him do what he's doing and I just kind of wait until we get to a certain certain part of the street that I recognize that I instantly knew oh I know where I'm at I can get home from here I can like dart and get home so we get there he's still rubbing calling me baby and then doing the most and so as soon as I was like I know where we are I can get out here he's like are you sure he's like I can drop you off your house I was like no it's fine I, I know where I'm at I can get there on my own. And so, literally, he lets me out the car. I take off running just to get back to the apartment. At the time, I was staying with my uncle. Um, and then, from then on, I just called the police. And then that's a whole nother ridiculous story. But that's how I got raped. Um, and I think 
now, years later, looking back on it, the one thing I learned was that, most importantly, it, it wasn't my fault. There was nothing I could do. Me being who I am, looking how I look, it was not my fault. It didn't matter. And that I shouldn't feel guilty because I did not ultimately confess everything to the police because I wasn't comfortable nor ready and the police officers didn't treat me as, as a citizen or a, a young girl or trans woman who got raped. It, they treated me as if I was some prostitute who was mad that she didn't get paid for doing a service. Um, but it's okay. It's not my, it wasn't my fault. And it doesn't make me a bad person because I didn't do what everybody always says you should do when things like this happen. It made me stronger. It made me better. I even ran into him one time at a McDonald's in the middle of the night, like months later with my uncle and my little cousin. I was a little bit shooken, but I felt more empowered and a lot stronger than what I did when the situation actually happened and felt that I could whoop his ass right now if I wanted to. <laughs> but I felt good. I felt good, and I realized to never let any anything like that ever put me in a place where I'm not as strong as I know I am. That's the end of my story. I'm Alex Alexander, and this is my story. Um, um, I'm no stranger to whatever we call assault, but I know for a fact that there are certainly layers to that word, to that phrase, to that feeling of being violated. Someone continues with their advances without having your yes and you feel as though you're just unimportant that my consent meant nothing and this person still continues to push themselves on me um in my experience however it was never so dire that i felt out of control that my no eventually didn't take hold it was um in social situations more or less where i felt that the more people around, the more these hands could take advantage of my person. It's always sometimes, it's always the person that you expected the least to to violate you. Um, I had a situation where at a concert at one of my favorite venues around some of my favorite people where I felt my most perfect self in my element um, I had a friend, or who I thought was a friend, um, literally grab a huge chunk of my ass. And as much as I hate this sound so vulgar, it was very vulgar. And I hated the feeling of, I don't want to comment on this, I don't want to trouble the water. But my water was already troubled, you know what I mean? I was already, like, completely troubled. That was the end of my night for me. And, um... And I will never look at that person.
person the same again. When everybody was posting their Me Too, their hashtag Me Too, I not only felt bad for my sisters who were doing that, I also was disgusted by the men I saw on my timeline saluting these women for their bravery. And I know deep down that some of these men are, in fact, um, predators themselves. And no one would ever want to admit that what they saw as flirting or what they saw as, um, you know, giving you a physical compliment isn't a, a predatory act. But it is. Anything that requires you in my personal space where I did not invite you is a predatory act, in my in my opinion. Um I know for a fact that my mother harbors some of the worst stories um, growing up in the South um, where young women, young, gorgeous women, my mother is gorgeous. And that should never be something that you think will ever work against you, but it does. Um, Of those dark family secrets that come out when everyone's just a little too in their um, cocktail during holiday season and we just get too real with each other and those wounds open up again and um my mother shared her story with me and um shared a part where she said she felt as though like i said before she didn't want to ruffle anyone's feathers she didn't want to trouble the water she didn't want to get so and so in trouble but she was in trouble she felt unsafe in her home and there was a time where i felt i could share my situations with my mother and ask, you know, in this day and age, how do I go about protecting myself when I never felt like I was um, in the line of fire, so to speak, in the first place? Um, these these brothers, these big brothers, these guys that say they have your back, literally have your back, and a whole handful of it sometimes. Um, I've had friends who have spoken up against rape and will be in a uh, in another social situation where they will literally let some of the nastiest behaviors define them. As if they were to say, oh, well, I dressed this way, and I guess I deserved that. You never deserve that. You never deserve someone's unwanted advances. I hope that I'm not being repetitive, but I'm just replaying some of these instances in my head where... You know, we're just too gorgeous for words and we're out, me and my girls, having a good time. And someone who thinks they're being charming is literally being the most vile, disgusting human being to ever walk into the nightclub. Um, It's never a, you could be wearing a McDonald's napkin and a couple band-aids around your breasts and you're still not asking for it. You're still not asking for that attention and it is never your fault. No will always just mean no. And um, as I go on out by myself at night, I always have my guard up. In the daytime, I always have my guard up. Going to get coffee, I always have my guard up. Because that type of that type of male, that type of person will always be lurking in the corners, in the shadows. That might be my paranoia, but I can't afford to walk out of my house without it. Because so much can happen in the blink of an eye. That, uh, you know, it's just, it, it would just be foolish to think we were always safe. There's no right place, right time. Anything can happen. I don't want to scare anybody, but shit's real out there and people are gross. So my story is more or less on the lighter side, but there's no light side to assault. They're just different versions of it. And um, 
when you think you're really safe, don't think you're too safe. That big brother could be a, a big pansy predator. That guy that's just a friend could just be waiting for you to be a little a little more off your guard to be more than a friend. It just it just works out that way sometimes, I guess, and, and it's really unfortunate. So my me too comes from the place of trusting somebody that I shouldn't have trusted um, and calling people friends that I shouldn't have called friends. Um, so yeah, I think that's a, I think that's my piece. And I hope at some point this might've helped somebody who thought that the me too had to come from um, the depths of, of rape and, and having your innocence taken from you. There's that. And then there's just the unwanted attention that a lot of us just, you know, let trickle down our back. Like it, it's it's uh it's nothing to take with a grain of salt. All of it's serious. Um, so yeah, I just thank you for allowing me to share my my rants, my ramblings, and I hope that I help someone. I am a black gay man, and this is my story. Uh. For a long time, I blocked out um, the fact that I was molested throughout my childhood. Um, The time that I remember the most was a cousin of mine. Uh, He was staying with me uh, and my family uh, because his family uh, was very dysfunctional. Uh, His mom was on drugs and stuff. So he came to stay with me. Uh, I probably was about seven, eight, and he was a bit older, probably about 12, 13. Uh, And he was like my best friend. Uh, We would hang out all the time. We'd play with toys. Um, We'd take baths together. Um, It seemed very regular uh, on the outside, but on uh, after dark or when no one was around, it would be uh, very... Uh, intimate. It would be. It, I didn't understand it at the time, um, but we would play little games, quote unquote, where he would have me do certain things, and uh, I just thought that was the way that people played with each other. I guess, um, and just kind of haphazardly, I mentioned it to my mom. Um, one day, and she got really upset, and um, then he left, and never came back again. Um, And so for a while after that, I felt like it was my fault that I had gotten my cousin or best friend or whoever uh, taken away or gotten him in trouble. So I had this guilt about that for a while, and then after... I became a teenager, I completely blocked it out until, I guess, I started to feel sexual energy towards other men, and then it came flashing back, and then that's when the regret turned into this feeling that if I wasn't molested, then I probably wouldn't have these feelings. So then it became this whole self-hatred thing. Um, and then when you have your mom saying, oh, um, 
that's just because your cousin touched you or whatever. And like it, it in black homes, a lot of times um, things aren't discussed. So things it, it's always said that what happens in this house stays in this house, and so the secrecy and the non-disclosure of all the things that did happen to me uh, kind of started to swell and I couldn't really take it. So I was depressed. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I was still walking around saying I was I was straight or bisexual just so I didn't have that gay moniker over me. Um, and it took a long time. Like, even, I, I would say, like, even... I'm 29 right now, so maybe until 25, 26 to, like, fully, fully get over that, all of those emotions and stop feeling the the hatred that I feel towards my cousin and uh, the kind of the angst, I guess, that I felt towards my mom for making me feel the way that I did and not understanding that I need to talk about it. Um, and just the weird emotions that I had towards sex in general. I, I don't think I fully started to enjoy sex until I was maybe 27, um, because sex always felt like I was doing it for them, and it wasn't something that I necessarily wanted to do. Um, it was just kind of an act, or an act like just like taking out the trash. It was just something to do. So, but getting getting past all of that, um, a few years ago, my mom called me, and I'm not sure how we got to the conversation, but she said that she found some paperwork from when I was a baby, and I'm like, oh, what are you talking about? And so she proceeds to tell me that when I was, like, a young child, maybe two, um, that my stepfather's grandmother used to watch me and that I started to act weird after a while and that I had, like, some some bleeding um, from my anus when I was uh, into my pamper when she would come and get me. And she took me to the hospital and it was discovered that I had damage in that area and that I was being um, molested even as a, a baby. And uh, my mom confronted uh, the, the people that I was staying with and it was all denied and it was, it was just kept hush-hush and she even tried to get the police involved and it just wasn't taken seriously. Um, and needless to say, I was not allowed to go over there anymore. But it it kind of threw me for a loop that this whole victimization thing didn't start when I was seven like I thought it did. It started like in at the basically the inception of my life. So that kind of put me back into that depression that I had before and and, and feeling like a victim and feeling like men uh, basically just wanted me for sex, like, and just used me up. Um, so, it, again, that took a while to get over. Um, 
And now, I think I am in the most clear and... I feel like I'm okay now. Um, it's, it's still something that uh, comes up in my mind periodically, um, just in, like, flashes when, I guess, triggered would be the word that I could use, um, when someone is overly aggressive towards me or is just too, uh, or just, like, very blatantly sexual, um, I guess I still feel triggered in a way. Which is ironic because I work in uh, HIV prevention, so I'm I'm very sex positive and all of that. But I guess you you can't really, uh, I guess it never really fully goes away. I mean, it's something that's happened. It, it was years of my life that all these things happened, so um, it's still something that kind of sits in the back of my mind. But it's also given me the motivation to use my platform as a peer educator, as a, uh, a coordinator, as, as someone in public health to talk to my clients about these types of things. Um, because it's one thing to say like, oh, it's, it's going to be okay, I understand, and it's never happened to you. But when you're able to relate on the level of saying, hey, this is something, I've, I've gone through the exact same thing. Um, that people really feel that they can trust you and open up about the things that are happening or are or are happening right now. Um, intimate partner violence is definitely something uh, that I like to focus on. Not I like to focus on, but that is definitely an issue right now um, because you can you you can be assaulted, you can be raped uh, as an adult and by someone that you care about. So that's something that I always try to enforce. And you can, and men can be raped. Um, I, I I know that it's kind of frowned upon or looked at in a weird way, like, oh, you're a man and you have this strength and you can fight back and this and this and that. But it's not like that. Like when someone is attempting to, do something like that to you, some people have the response of just shutting down and just not, just freezing up, basically. Um, I know the times that stuff almost happened um, and when I was in inebriated states with, with other men, I would freeze up and I would be in my mind screaming, like, I don't want this to happen, but then it's like, well, I'm a guy, so I don't, I, like, I guess I should be okay with this. And I now know that that isn't the case, but knowing that fight or flight isn't always the response that someone has when they're being touched inappropriately. So at the end of the day, and the reason that I wanted to share my story um, I could have gone way more in depth, but there is there is light at the end of the tunnel. Um, it's not trying to be cliche, but there is 
there is hope and there is a a lesson to be learned in everything that you experience in life. So I know that my relationships with men haven't always been the most healthy uh, because of things that have happened to me, but I feel like I wouldn't be the man that I am today or be doing the work that I'm doing or feeling the conviction that I have to help other people if I didn't go through these things myself so that someone else may not have to experience it or may not have to hold on to these emotions because they can't talk to somebody somebody about it, right? So there is hope. Um, there is someone that is willing to listen. It's not your fault. That's that's the main thing, that it's not your fault. Uh, predators look for people with soft hearts and with uh, people that they know uh, not that they aren't strong because you are still strong, but know that they see something in you that lets them know that they can attack you and that that you'll find a way to uh, to basically not tell on them or not do anything about it and that isn't okay. Um, you are stronger than you know, and at the end of the day, no matter what happens to you, uh, everything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And no matter how long it takes, no matter how many years, um, all of the experiences that you've gone through will culminate in you becoming the amazing person that you can be. Um, and if you see someone going through similar experiences, you would be the person that they can talk to and hopefully lead them out of the darkness and into the light like you are. Um, and that is my story. And I pray that anyone who has experienced any of these things will come into the light or find someone to talk to and basically just grow and help as many people as you can. After listening to these stories, I pray you feel you're not alone. I pray you feel you can heal with time. I pray you're loving yourself day after day. Many of us have been victims of sexual assault and may not even realize it. I definitely know that's the case for me. But here's the thing. There will be no more compliance, no more silence, no more feeling alone. If you're listening to this and you're healing through sexual assault, you are not alone. If you need help and feel you have no one close to you that you can confide in, please call the National Assault Hotline at 800-656-4673. I will also make sure to place the number in the description for this episode. Please keep the conversation going. Share this episode and I pray that it makes a difference. You can walk with me on social media at Scorpiogi and add the podcast by searching for the Healing Space Podcast. Again, thank you so much for listening and until next week.
Namaste.